Salutations. I am Kenneth Barrios, leadership coach and owner of Key Bravo Leadership Development with the mission of unleashing your talents and maximizing your impact without compromising your time. Welcome to our 16 Laws of Success series, where I read about 20 to 30 minutes of this great tome for your audio pleasure. This book is the foundation of which all other personal and professional development is based, written by Napoleon Hill in 1928. I am now using this public domain book as a foundation to success, and I want to bring you along for the journey. So please enjoy, and your feedback is always welcome. With gratitude, thank you. A definite chief aim. The keynote of this entire lesson may be found in the word, quote, definite. It is most appalling to know that 95% of the people of the world are drifting aimlessly through life without the slightest conception of the work for which they are best fitted and with no conception whatsoever of even the need of such a thing as a definite objective toward which to strive. There is a psychological as well as an economic reason for selecting of a definite chief aim in life. Let us devote our attention to the psychological side of the question first. It is well-established principle of psychology that a person's acts are always in harmony with the dominating thoughts of his or her mind. Any definite chief aim that is deliberately fixed in the mind and held there with the determination to realize it finally saturates the entire subconscious mind until it automatically influences the physical action of the body toward the attainment of that purpose. Your definite chief aim in life should be selected with deliberate care. After it has been selected, it should be written out and placed where you will see it at least once a day. The psychological effect, which is to impress this person upon your subconscious mind so strongly that it accepts that purpose, as a pattern or blueprint that will eventually dominate your activities in life and lead you step-by-step toward the attainment of the object back of that purpose. The principle of psychology through which you can impress your definite chief aim upon your subconscious mind is called auto-suggestion, or suggestion which repeatedly make to yourself. It is a degree of self-hypnotism, but do not be afraid of it on that account. For it was this same principle through the aid of which Napoleon lifted himself from the lowly station of poverty-stricken coercion to the dictatorship of France. It was through the aid of this same principle that Thomas A. Edison has risen from the lowly beginning of a news butcher to where he is accepted as the leading inventor of the world. It was through the aid of this same principle that Lincoln bridged the mighty chasm between his lowly birth in a log cabin in the mountains of Kentucky and the presidency of a great nation on earth. It was through the aid of the same principle that Theodore Roosevelt became one of the most aggressive leaders that have ever reached the presidency of the United States. You need have no fear of the principle of auto-suggestion as long as you are sure that the object for which you are striving is one will bring you happiness of an enduring nature. Be sure that your definite purpose is constructive, that it is attainment will bring hardship and misery to no one, that it will bring you peace and prosperity, then apply to the limit of your understanding the principle of self-suggestion for the speedy attainment of this purpose. On the street corner, just opposite the room in which I am sitting, I see a man who stands there all day long and sells peanuts. He is busy every minute. 
When not actually engaged in making a sale, he is roasting and packing the peanuts in little bags. He is one of the great he is one of that great army constituting the ninety five percent who have no definite purpose in life. He is selling peanuts, not because he likes the work better than anything else he might do, but because he has never sat down and thought out a definite purpose that would bring him greater returns for his labor. He is selling peanuts because he is a drifter on the sea of life, and one of the tragedies of his work is the fact that the same amount of effort that he puts into it, if directed along other lines, would bring him much greater returns. Another one of the tragedies of man, of this man's work is the fact that he is so unconsciously making use of the principle of self-suggestion, but he is doing it to his own disadvantage. No doubt, if a picture could be made of his thoughts, there would be nothing in that picture except peanut roaster, some little paper bags, and a crowd of people buying peanuts. This man could get out of the peanut business if he had the vision and ambition first to imagine himself in a more profitable calling, and the perseverance to hold that picture before his mind until it influenced him to take the necessary steps to enter a more profitable calling. He puts sufficient labor into his work to bring him a substantial return if that labor were directed toward the attainment of a definite purpose that offered bigger returns. One of my closest personal friends is one of the best-known writers and public speakers of this country. About 10 years ago, he caught sight of, a, of the possibilities of this principle of self-suggestion and began immediately to harness it and put it to work. He worked out a plan for its application and proved to be very effective. At that time, he was neither a writer nor speaker. Each night, just before going to sleep, he would shut his eyes and see in his imagination a long council table of which he placed in his imagination certain well-known men whose characteristics he wished to absorb into his own personality. At the end of the table, he placed Lincoln. At the other side of the table, he placed Napoleon, Washington, Emerson, and Albert Hubbard. He then proceeded to talk to these imaginary figures that he had seated at his imaginary council something after this manner. Mr. Lincoln, I desire to build in my own character those qualities of patience and fairness toward all mankind and the keen sense of humor which you, which your outstanding characteristics. I need these qualities and I shall not be contented until I have developed them. Mr. Washington, I desire to build my own character whose qualities of patriotism and self-sacrifice and leadership which were your outstanding characteristics. Mr. Emerson, I desire to build in my own character those qualities of vision and the ability to interpret the laws of nature as written in the rocks of prison walls and growing trees and flowing brooks and growing flowers and the faces of little children, which were your outstanding characteristics. Napoleon, I desire to build my own character those qualities of self-reliance and the strategic ability to master obstacles and profit by mistakes and develop strength out of defeat which were your outstanding characteristics. Mr. Hubbard, I desire to develop the ability to equal and even to excel the ability that you possessed, which, which you to express yourself in clear, concise, and forceful language. Night after night, for many months, this man saw these men seated around the imaginary council table until finally he had imprinted their outstanding characteristics upon his own subconscious mind, so clearly that he began to develop a personality which was a composite of their, of their personalities. The subconscious mind may be likened to a magnet, and when it has been vitalized and thoroughly saturated with a definite purpose, 
it has decided tendency to attract all that is necessary for the fulfillment of that purpose. Like attract like, and you may see evidence of this law in every blade of grass and every growing tree. The acorn attracts from the soil and the air the necessary materials out of which to grow an oak tree. It never grows a tree that is part oak and part poplar. Every grain of wheat that is planted in the soil attracts materials out of which to grow a stalk of wheat. <clears throat> it never makes a mistake. It grows both oats and wheat at the same stalk. And men are subject also to this same law of attraction. Go into any cheap boarding house district in any city, and there you will find people with the same general trend of mind associated together. On the other hand, go into a prosperous community, and there you will find people with the same general tendencies associated together. Men who are successful always seek the company of others who are successful, while men who are on the ragged side of life always seek the company of those who are in similar circumstances. Quote, misery loves company. Quote. Water seeks its level with no finer certainty than the man who seeks company of the who occupy his own general status financially and mentally. A professor of Yale University and an illustrate hobo have nothing and an illiterate hobo have nothing in common. They would be miserable if thrown together for any great length of time. Oil and water will mix as readily as will men who have nothing in common. All of which leads up to this statement. That you will attract to you people who harmonize with your own philosophy of life, whether you wish it or not. This being true, can you not see the importance of vitalizing your mind with a definite chief aim that will attract to you people who will be of help to you and not a hindrance? Suppose your definite chief aim is far above your present station in life. What of it? It is your privilege, nay, your duty to aim high in life. You owe it to yourself and the community in which you live to set a high standard for yourself. There is much evidence to justify the belief that nothing will, within reason is beyond the possibility of attainment of a man whose definite chief aim has been well developed. Some years ago, Louis Victor Intinge was given a life sentence in an Arizona penitentiary. At the same, at the time of his imprisonment, he was an all-around quote bad man quote, according to his own admissions. In addition to this, it was believed that. He would die within a year. Break, break. I would like to have a quick word from our sponsor. Thank you for your time. Let's get back to the reading. I Tinch had reason to feel discouraged, if anyone ever had. Public feeling against him was intense, and he did not have a single friend in the world who came forth and offered him encouragement or help. Then something happened in his own mind that gave him back his health, but he dreaded, quote, white plague, quote, to rout and finally unlock the prison gates gave him his freedom. What was this, quote, something? Just this. He made up his mind to whip the white plague and regain his health. That was a very definite chief aim. In less than a year from the time he decision was made, he had won. Then he extended that definite chief aim by making up his mind to gain his freedom. Soon the prison walls melted from around him. No undesirable environment is strong enough to hold the man or woman who understands how to apply the principle of autosuggestion in the creation of a definite chief aim. Such a person can throw off the shackles of poverty, destroy the most deadly disease germs, rise from a lowly station in life to power and plenty. 
All great leaders base their leadership upon a definite chief aim. Followers are willing followers when they know that their leader is a person with a definite chief aim who has the courage to back up that purpose with action. Every Even a bulky horse knows when a driver with a definite chief aim takes hold of the reins and yields to that driver. When a man with a definite chief aim starts through a crowd, everybody stands aside and makes a way for him. But let a man hesitate and show by his actions that he is not sure which way he wants to go, and a crowd will step all over his toes and refuse to budge an inch out of his way. Nowhere is the lack of definite chief aim more noticeable or more detrimental than in than it is in the relationship between parent and child. Children sense very quickly the wavering attitude of their parents and take advantage of that attitude quite freely. It is the same all through life. Men with a definite chief aim command respect and attention at all times. So much for the psychological viewpoint of a definite purpose. Let us now turn to the economic side of the question. If a steamship has lost its rudder in the mid-ocean and began circling around, it soon exhausts its fuel supply without reaching shore, despite the fact that it is, would have used up the, enough energy to carry to shore and back several times. The man who labors without a definite purpose that is backed up by the definite plan for his attainment resembles a ship that has lost its rudder. Hard labor and good intentions are not sufficient to carry a man through to the process. For how many, how may a man be sure that he has attained success unless he has established in his mind some definite object that he wishes? Every well-built house starts in the form of a definite purpose, plus a definite plan in the nature of a set of blueprints. Imagine what would happen if one tried to build a house by the haphazard method without plans. Workmen would be in each other's way. Building materials would be piled all over the lot before the foundation was completed. And everybody on the job would have a different notion as to how a house ought to be built. Result, chaos and misunderstandings and the cost that would be prohibitive. Yet, had you ever stopped to think that most people finish school take up employment, or enter a trade or profession without the slightest conception of anything that even remotely resembles a definite purpose or a definite plan. In view of the fact that science has provided reasonably accurate ways and means of analyzing character and determining the life work for which people are best fitted, does it not seem a modern tragedy that 95% of the adult population of the world is made up of men and women who are failures because they have not found their proper niches in the world's work. If success depends upon power, and if power is organized effort, and if the first step in the direction of organization is a definite purpose, then one may easily see why such a purpose is essential. Until a man selects a definite purpose in life, he dissipates his energies and spreads his thoughts all over so many subjects that in so many different directions that they lead not to power, but to indecision and weakness. With the aid of a small reading glass, you can teach yourself a great lesson on the value of organized effort. Through the use of such a glass, you can focus the sun rays on a definite spot so strongly that they will burn a hole through a plank. Remove the glass, which represents a definite purpose, and the same rays of sunshine on the same plank for a million years without burning it. A thousand electric dry batteries, when properly organized and connected together with wires, will produce enough power to run a good-sized piece of machinery for several hours. 
but take those same cells singly, disconnected, and not one of them would exert enough energy to turn the machinery over once. The faculties of your mind might properly be likened to those dry cells. When you organize your faculties according to the plan laid out down in the, in the 16 lessons of this reading course on the law of success and direct them toward the attainment of a definite purpose in life, you then take advantage of the cooperative and accumulative principle out of which power is developed, which is called organized effort. Andrew Carnegie's advice was this, quote, Place all your eggs in one basket and then watch the basket to see that no one kicks it over, end quote. By that advice, he meant, of course, that we should not dissipate any of our energies by engaging in sidelines. Carnegie was a sound economist, and he knew that most men would do well if they harnessed and directed their energies, that some one thing would be done well. When the plan backed, of this reading course was first born. I remember taking the first manuscript to a professor at the University of Texas, and in the spirit of enthusiasm, I suggested to him that I had discovered a principle that would be of aid to me in every public speech I delivered thereafter, because I would be better prepared to organize and marshal my, my thoughts. He looked at the outline of the 15 points for a few minutes and then turned to me and said, Yes, your discovery is going to help you make better speeches, speeches, but that is not all it will do. It will help you become a more effective writer, for I have noticed in your previous writings a tendency to scatter your thoughts. For instance, if you start to describe a beautiful mountain yonder in the distance, you would be apt to sidetrack your description by calling attention to a beautiful bed of wild flowers, or a running brook, or a singing bird, detouring here and there zigzag fashion, before finally arriving at the proper point from which you view the mountain. In the future, you are going to find it much less difficult to describe an object, whether you are speaking or writing, because your 15 points represent the very foundation of your of organization, end quote. <clears throat> a man who has no legs once met a man who, has, who was blind, to prove conclusively that the lame man was a man of vision, he proposed to the blind man that they form an alliance that would be of great benefit to both. You let me climb upon your back, he said to the blind man, then I will use your legs and you may use my eyes. Between the two of us, we will go along more rapidly. Out of allied effort comes great power. This is a point that is worthy of much repetition because it forms one of the most important parts of the foundation of this reading course. The great fortunes of the world have been accumulated through the use of this principle of allied effort, that which one man can accomplish single-handedly during an entire lifetime is but a meager at best, no matter how well organized that man may be, but that which one man may accomplish through the principle of alliance with other men is practically without limitation. That mastermind, quoted, to which Carnegie referred dur during my interview with him, was made up of more than a score of minds. In that group were men of practically every temperament and inclination. Each man was there to play a certain part, and he did nothing else. There was a perfect understanding and teamwork between these men. It was Carnegie's business to keep harmony among them. And he did it wonderfully well. 
if you're if if you are familiar with the game of football, you know of course that winning team is the one that best coordinates the efforts of its players. Teamwork is the thing that wins. It is the same in the great game of life. If you struggle for success, you should keep constantly in mind the necessity of knowing that what it is that you want of knowing precisely that is your definite purpose. And the value of the principle of organized effort in the attainment of that which constitutes your definite purpose. In a vague sort of way, nearly everyone has a definite purpose, namely the desire for money. But this is not a definite purpose within the meaning of the term as it is used in this lesson. Before your purpose can be considered definite, even though that purpose would were the accumulation of money, you would have to reach a decision as to the precise method through which you intend to accumulate that money. It would be insufficient for you to say that you would make money by going into some sort of business. You would have to decide just what line of business. You would also have to decide just where you would locate. You would also have to decide the business policies under which you would conduct your business. In answering the question, Quote, what is your definite purpose in life? Quote, that appears in the questionnaire, which I have used for the analysis of more than 16,000 people. Many answered but about as follows. Quote, my definite purpose in life is to be as much service to the world as possible and earn a good living. End quote. That answer is about as definite as a frog's conception of the size of the universe is accurate. The object of this lesson is not to inform you as to what your life work should be, for indeed, this could be done with the accuracy only after you've had the completely analyzed, but it is intended as a means of impressing upon your mind a clear conception of the value of a definite purpose of some nature and of the value of understanding the principle of organized effort as a means of attaining the necessary power with which to materialize your definite purpose. Careful observation of the business philosophy of more than 100 men and women who have attained outstanding success in their respective callings disclose the fact that each was a person of prompt and definite decision. The habit of working with a definite chief aim will breed in you the habit of prompt decision, and this habit will come to your aid in all that what you do. Moreover, the habit of working with a definite chief aim will help you to concentrate all your attention on any given task until you have mastered it. The concentration of effort and the habit of working with a definite chief aim are two of the essential factors in success which are always found together. One leads to another. The best known successful businessmen were all men of prompt decision who worked always with one main outstanding purpose of their chief aim. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day, and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor.